This is Below the Line. We spotlight the jobs in the film and entertainment industry that you may or may not be aware of. Today we're going to talk to special effects artist and educator Lee Joyner. He's worked on a variety of projects including Star Trek Voyager, Mimic, Godzilla, CSI, The Orville, and an impressive amount of Slipknot videos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yes, thank great to be you. Here. Yeah, we are uh, here at uh, my school, Legends Makeup Academy. Uh, partners with B. Neal, uh, legendary makeup artist. Uh, so I apologize in advance. We have, uh, you know, it's a working classroom, so we have students talking and teachers, but hopefully the noise will be to a minimum. Uh, well, we have so many questions to ask you because mm -hmm. we're very excited and we hear that you're just uh, the wealth of knowledge that's uh, overflowing. Well, I try. I've been out here a while. So to start with, can I ask you, bare bones basic, how would you define um, special effects in terms of the work that you do? A, well, special makeup effects. Mm -hmm. a, uh, a special uh, makeup effect would be something that um, is a practical effect that is used with an actor in the conjunction of filming. So um, if it's something that, um, you want to see on set in front of you uh, that physically is interacting with actors uh, generally as special effects, although it can be inserts and so on. Um, most people think of special makeup effects in regards to horror films you know, or sci-fi or fantasy films, but if you've been following the Academy Awards the last few decades, uh, even going back further, uh, the ones that tend, tend to get nominated would be the likeness makeups or the, the realistic makeups that sometimes people don't even realize are makeups. Uh, the, the best in the business right now, my opinion, would be Kazuhiro Suji, who uh, received the Academy Award for The Darkest Hour with uh, Gary Oldman, a beautiful uh, uh, Churchill. And the Oscar goes to... Darkest Hour. <laughs> Firstly, we would like to give our heartfelt thanks to Gary Oldman. It was a real honor to be on this incredible journey with you, and we would not be standing here today if it wasn't for you. Uh, it was a really special project, and it's a bit because such a great talent came to one show. We shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home. Those tend to be elevated amongst their peers in regards to the quality because it's so difficult to do. Um, so difficult to gain the likeness of someone that already exists? Yeah, exa well, it's difficult to achieve the uh, appearance of realism. Okay. So a lot of times you'll get actors uh, in productions where you still they still want to see the original actor even though it's a character they're playing, right? A uh, lot of movies are like that, uh, Hitchcock films and so on, like Anthony Hopkins. So they, you know, pay a lot of money for those actors and they want that actor to be recognizable but also have the appearance of the other character. And other times it's like with Gary Oldman, what he did with, with Churchill. But there's, I think, The Eyes of Tammy Faye is the one that just came out, which has, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Tammy Faye, what'd you do? Hello, Mother, this is Jim Baker, my husband. Again, that was likeness makeups. So special effect could be a wound, it could be a likeness, it could be a creature, it could be anything um, from 
very subtle, and it doesn't even have to involve prosthetics. It could be a character makeup. Prosthetic makeup is the process of using sculpting, molding, and casting techniques to create advanced cosmetic effects. Which would be just using coloration yeah. to achieve the effect. Okay, this is a little specific, but you were talking about likeness, and then I was thinking one of the movies that I've seen is done in... Are you familiar with the movie Looper? Of course. Yeah. Okay. They did a young um, Bruce Willis. Uh, yeah, and with Joseph yeah, and that, yeah. It's hard to into your eyes. It's too strange. Your face looks backwards. That's fantastic, yeah. And is that, were they building on? Do you know no, that would, be, that would be something like, like this, where you have a, a silicone appliance. So you would do a life cast of, let's see, uh, oh, look at this. Well, I have a, since V worked with uh, Robin Williams, uh, so many times we have a, a Robin life cast. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this was him, maybe from Mrs. Doubtfire. Okay, sorry, just really quick, let me interrupt for a second and explain what's going on here. Lee pulls out a prosthetic appliance example and a life cast bust of Robin Williams, and it looks exactly like Robin Williams, demonstrating how the prosthetic fits over the bust. Also, there are a few makeup industry terms we should probably define because Lee is the wizard of the vocabulary. So from time to time, I'm just going to pop into the interview and explain a term or an industry word that, you know, you probably already know, but maybe you don't uh, because I didn't. So maybe you also uh, did, don't and could use a definition. But um, you would take a live cast. Nowadays, we would do laser scans. Uh, we, Old school, you would do physical alginate plaster bandages, but the problem is it adds weight to the face because you're putting heavy material on it. And when it sets, it's pulled down a little bit. When you do a laser scan, you're doing it fresh and it's natural, and then you 3D print it out. A laser scan is a highly accurate, non-contact, non-destructive digital technology that captures the 3D geometry of a physical object. Uh, and then you would do a sculpture, and then that would get approved, and then you would do a negative mold, and then you would run silicone or whatever material you're using, gelatin, foam latex. A negative mold contains the reverse three-dimensional imprint of the positive sculpture. And then you would end up, you know, with, a, uh, with an appliance, uh, and then you have flashing. Flashing is the excess casting material in a prosthetic mold that is separated by cutting the edge of the mold or the area of a mold where it overflows. And then this is what they would pre-paint. The students are learning that this week here at Legends. Um, and that they're going to learn how to work just with silicone this week. Uh, and then you would color it, and then you get the movement, and at the end of the day, you throw it away. Okay. And then you cast, you have new ones cast for every day. So. And when you say you get it approved, just mm -hmm. the face itself, yeah, you want to get the, well, first you have to go through the design process, either through Photoshop or through someone actually doing physical uh, drawings. Uh, and um, then you might do test makeups, right? Depending on the budget and the time frame. You want to see how it works on camera, see how it moves. Because there's a lot of things that technically might look great uh, in the design stage, but when it's on them, it's not going to work for whatever reason. Uh, and then um, once that's, uh, you know, approved. So you go through multiple approval stages because you're working as part of a team and you want to make sure you're giving the director their vision it's not about you it's about the production and it's about the vision right and how much creative um opportunity do you typically have when they say this is what we want for the character sure the, no I, I that's a great question the uh the lower the budget the more creativity you have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what i find because they're just happy to have you and no oh, dude this is kind of what i want and 
And then the more uh, cooks you have in the kitchen, usually the less freedom you have, but there are ways to get around it. And generally you are hired because of your skill set and your experience, so you know how to work with that. Um, they, the uh, you know, production might know what they want, but they don't know how to achieve it, or maybe even how to verbalize it. So our job is to come in and give them like a new alphabet they can pick from to create the words of the story they're trying to tell. Great. So they're going to go, oh, that's, ex I had an interview once uh, with a director did a film. It ended up being an alien, a full head gray type alien, but he reacted so strongly to this green skinned orc with pointed ears. He said, that's exactly what I want, but I don't want the pointed ears. I want it gray and I want it an alien. But he was reacting to the emotion he felt when he saw the character. So again, we are like, you know, we're trying to put forth a language, a visual language to pull emotions out of the viewer. And that's very nebulous and difficult to do, but once you tap into that flow, it's a lot easier. So you're trying to have people from all different cult cultures and age brackets and, um, you know, trying to look at a character and feel an emotion because that's what you want your audience to feel and and every character has a certain role and generally when it comes to special effects you're trying to pull an emotion out of the audience so that's why working with the actor is crucial with the movement and the expression and what they're feeling and the more material you put on someone's face the less the emotion transfers through so we have to balance that by sculpting it into the makeup and then they have to overact, like Doug Jones is considered the greatest current creature performer out there. He has to over emote, and so he uses his body a lot, but it's also a lot of expression because it doesn't transfer. Sure. Right? So there's a lot of times where you will sculpt a, a, a mad forehead yeah. and then a happy forehead, depending on how thick it is and what the scene calls for. Yeah, yeah. And then if you sculpt a nasolabial that's not right where the actor's nasal when they smile, and that's why the Joker, you never, they've never really done any strong Joker makeups that match the comic because it's almost impossible to do because you're dealing with the mouth. You know, eventually they'll do a CG one probably, sadly, but, uh, you know, if they want to nail what happened in the comics. But again, it's more about the feeling of the character, and that's totally understandable. So your job is to just translate what this person wants and how it needs to look on, you know, on screen and... Uh, do your best, and then, and then just uh, go to the movie theater and hope that they kept your scene in, and then hope that it you know, was lit properly, and then hope that they didn't show that edge. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get to know the cinematographers and the DPs and everybody, and you say, hey guys, I didn't have enough time to really finish this. Can we use the shadows, or can we you talk to your actor? Yeah. It's a team effort. It's huge. Because everybody wants to have a good project finished, right? You want to have the best project you can. Are you given the same character breakdown that an actor's given for what they want presented? Like, where are you? Well, a lot of times uh, we're hired before the actor's hired. Okay. And even sometimes, if you have enough pull and it, it's really specific, you, you want to request, "Can I be there when you're casting?" Mm -hmm. Like Rick Baker wanted to be there when they were casting for Planet of the Apes, right? He's looking for certain facial features that match what he's doing for the gorilla character or whatever. You know, and they might have allowed him, but he was like, well, you know, I didn't really have much say about it, and that's not his job. Director Tim Burton talks about makeup for The Planet of the Apes. People, 
feel claustrophobic or feel, you know, they, they don't come through. And again, you need an actor and actors that are strong enough to kind of burst through the makeup. Yeah, usually there's a close collaboration with the actor. Um, that's what's so great about people like Doug Jones is, and Gary Oldman is they really want to bring that character out the best they can. So you'll collaborate with them, and how does that work, and how does that feel, and you want them to be comfortable as possible. It's not comfortable wearing 40 pounds of makeup. I mean, you felt that silicone. It's got some weight to it. Yeah. Unlike foam latex, which is the weight of a cosmetic sponge. Foam latex is a lightweight, soft form of latex, which is used in masks and facial prosthetics to change a person's outward appearance. But now with 4K and 8K and hyper-realism, we have to go with translucent materials, and unfortunately, the only translucent material we had up until silicone was gelatin. Gelatin is a translucent, colorless, flavorless food derived from collagen obtained from animal body parts. It's used as a prosthetic appliance material. Gelatin's beautiful, it's great, but it's an organic material that melts with heat and moisture. So it's a great movie uh, called Mississippi Burning uh, with James Woods, where he played a racist lawyer, I think, or no guy that was gone through a court case for killing somebody. And they were, Matthew Mungle did that, and they were down there filming, I think it was Mississippi Burning, filming that, and they were sweating, and you'd have to, in between takes, you know, fan it, you have sweat stop, and you have all these things, but eventually it would start to crack and peel away. So silicon, you don't have to worry about. Sweat Stop is a topical antiperspirant solution designed to minimize sweating. Ideal for use underneath appliances, bald caps, and prosthetics. But it makes it more expensive. Yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, depending on the ratio of sorbitol to glycerin to zinc oxide, you get cracking or you get melting, and so. We have to be chemists in yes. this industry. I was nodding along like I knew every word that you were saying. <laughs> well, sorbitol is a uh, candy stiffener they use for gummy bears. Uh, gelatin, uh, you know, glycerin, you can buy yeah. at, you know, at CBS. Uh, zinc oxide is what they use for, um, if you've ever been snow skiing or for sports, they have, you'll see the white stripes that are uh, sunblock or other things, that's zinc oxide. So, yeah. So it's a lot of experimentation. Okay, amazing. Uh, so you are, you have a school here, and a big thing that people always want to know when they're learning about jobs in the industry is what kind of education is required. Right. And I'm starting at the very basics. I mean, what was your foremost education that you experienced, and how did you, you know, start teaching yourself sure. first? Or... Well, I did. Um, it was cotton, latex, and um, it was sculpting. I think my first sculpture was I, I in the mid-80s or late, no, late 80s, uh, I sculpted Michael Keaton as Batman, but did my own design. Um, and no, my first sculpture was a fan of the opera, and then I moved on to the Michael Keaton one. So would um, that have just been the... It wasn't a prosthetic, it was just a giant oh, thing of clay. Oh, okay, okay. So learning the volumetric relationship of anatomy and design. Um, but in regards to education, I went to school for, uh, I think for one year I was a Russian major and a computer uh, science minor. Then I was into marine biology and then I was an illustration major and then I ended up with industrial design background. So I was getting into prototyping and automotive design and blueprinting for like uh, uh, exhibit designs. And then, But I was still going home and sculpting and making stuff and running foam. Uh, and then I started working with animatronic companies uh, in Florida and all throughout the South. Uh, for theme parks. 
I worked for Disney, uh, lead sculptor on the Lion King, I had puppet shows, so I did all their puppets. Uh, and then came out here around 94, 95, and started working in film. Okay, but to back up, because you were making sculpt sculptures before then. Yeah. And so you just, you watched movies and you said, I think I want to do this. Let me just try it. Or right. Was someone in your life no, said, no one. In, I, mean, I grew up in Alabama, so there was nobody around me. Okay. <laughs> they were burning Kiss records and Michael Jackson records back then. But, so, no, I was the weirdo. Um, but um, I would go to the library and read Richard Corson's stage makeup or Tom Savini's book or reading Cinefix articles and then hitting, uh, watching a lot of the behind the scenes videos um, for film. Um, I remember watching uh, the behind the scenes video for one of Michael Jackson's uh, music videos and it was Mike Smithson doing this beautiful makeup transformation on Michael and I remember just pausing it and taking a Polaroid and pausing it and taking a Polaroid and taking the Polaroid to the copy machine and enlarging it. You know, that's how you did things like that. I played a fat, grotesque, ridiculous mayor. If someone was looking to start their education today, do you think, I mean, how, if you were starting your education today, would it basically start on YouTube before coming to a school like it, yours? It or? primarily tends to, but mm -hmm. they always reach a stopping point. There's a ceiling because it's important to have someone standing next to you that mm -hmm. you trust, that is trusted by their peers. And that's the best way to judge someone's quality and knowledge is do their peers recognize them as some of the best in the industry? And that's why V and I partnered up. I mean, V has three Academy Awards. And the Oscar goes to V. Neal, Steve Laporte, and Robert Short for Beetlejuice. Greg Canham, V. Neal, and Yolanda Toussaint from Mrs. Doubtfire. The award goes to Rick Baker, V. Neal, and Yolanda Toussaint for Edwards. Lost Boys, Beetlejuice, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Gorgeous. You know, Mrs. Doubtfire, all these great films. And um, that's why we just decided to start Legends, because I want to have small classrooms. I want to bring in actors for those students to work on. They can network with the instructors, with the models, uh, and they're, they know they're learning from the best in the business. You know, it's not just a recent graduate from another school, or it's not someone that was just shoved in there because whatever reason. These are people that take it very seriously and they expect them to take it seriously. So, in answer to your previous question, we had beginner's classes for the foundational training, which would be like character, beauty, and then we have intermediate, and then we have advanced. And some of those do require portfolio reviews and interviews. So we do have, our, our, our student base is a nice mix of professionals. Where can we have union makeup artists that come in? Because we, we also design the courses where you could just take one week at a time. You don't have to put $40,000 down just to get a couple of classes that you really want. You can really target and focus on the skill sets you want to learn. Yeah, it's, do you, I, I, I guess I would love to understand, is there, are there niches for people who are working in mm -hmm. special, like so people who specialize in zombie characters? Yeah, or, I mean, we're the, we're the first school to do this uh, in the history of makeup education. We have, you know, a week of skin running just making skins and there are people out there that's all they do they're hired at a lab and they go in and every day they have a book of color tones and formulas and then they figure out what's going on with it. and you have mold makers and you have sculptors and you have people on set that are really good at blood rigging 
I mean, now it depends on what your final goals are and what you feel comfortable doing and where you want to be in your career. If you want to be a department head, then you, know, you want to learn as much as you can. If you want to own your own lab, you want to learn as much as you can. Um, but some people have anxiety issues or they don't really want to do that for whatever reason or they feel they're just not strong in that area and they'd rather work with someone that's better than them. Mm -hmm. so. What, when it comes to specializing in, in a certain area of special effects, I like, is there something that would make a person talent-wise best at a portion of, you know, what skill sets would be required for the, the skin making than would be required for the sculpturing? Sure. Things? Well, with skin making, it's a process of um, math to a degree, but it's also having a good eye for color, right? So I'm slightly colorblind in the green area, so maybe I'm not the best. Everyone colors differently. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you've got to be good at this because they're spending millions of dollars on these productions. And, you don't. and, and if you send them something that's off color, well then the makeup artist on set has to balance that and then they're gonna complain about it and then that might lose that lab future work in the, in the future with that production company. So, um, but that's important for the mold maker, for the sculptor, for, for a sculptor, you know, again, you're trying to translate from two dimensional to three dimensional. Uh, you have to learn how to work with the art director, with the lab owner, uh, and then you have to understand anatomy. You have to understand what the mold maker is going to need to a degree. And the mold maker has to be flexible in regards to the design, but also understand their budget and their time frame. They have to know the material they're going to be casting it out of. Material choice is paramount. Um, and then it has to close together like a puzzle. And then it has to be either injected or open poured. And you have to have bleeder holes. Then you have to be able to open it so it doesn't stick or rip. And that's the angle or the direction. So depending on how many pieces the mold has to be made, that's why they make, like Rob Freitas is one of the preeminent mold makers in the history of this industry. It's incredible. And he does some beautiful work, and he looks at it as an art. And that's how you, you have to have whoever goes in, don't just feel that, oh, I'm just making skins. No, you are the skin maker. What are you talking oh about? That's crucial. It's, that's important. What If your job doesn't work, it doesn't matter what the sculpture looked like or the mold looked like. No, I'm just mold making. What do you mean? You're, if you lock that mold, they have to re-sculpt it completely. So the problem is people might look at the sculptor or the makeup artist and say no every part of the process is important and you need to take care and appreciate it for the craft that it is i mean that's why we named the school legends we're standing on the shoulders of the great legends like gunner Ferdinandson or or, or uh, mari cedarman or um, you know jack pierce or john chambers these are people that designed and created and figured out the processes that we take for granted today, right? There's a, a chain of events there. Uh, and we're, the problem is we're, we're constantly trying to innovate and make new um, designs and procedures to deal with the upgraded technology with virtual reality or with 8K or 4K. Um, that's important and um, it's challenging. Our instructor, Irina, uh, here, for our silicone application mastery week. She just got off Lord of the Rings with, uh, over there uh, in New Zealand. And she was telling me they were doing some AK stuff and that's nerve wracking. Yeah. That's nerve wracking because it's got to blend perfectly and I, you know, I'm sure she did an incredible job. 
you kind of touched on some names that mean a lot to you and had a, a really big impact on the industry. Are there specific people that you look to as, as saying, like, we would not have what we sure. do today without them? And then people working today who you think are really yeah. branching out and continuing things in the direction. Yeah, I'll be happy to talk about them. I love talking about them. Um, going back, previous people that unfortunately have passed, but, uh, you know, you're starting with Lon Chaney, um, the original fan of the opera. But the problem with Lon is that he would do the makeup in a closed room and wouldn't let anybody watch, because back then it was, you know, that was the thing. Um, but then Jack Pierce came along, and Jack was incredible. He created all the uh, Universal monsters. Um, and it was really sad, because Jack would do all hand construction, you know, and then he would unveil it to the actor. Uh, some great stories about doing uh, the Frankenstein's monster makeup uh, on Boris Karloff. And then he would get up super early in the morning, go over to you know, uh, Jack's house, and sometimes he would do the makeup outside, have the mirror covered, and then they would unveil it. But it would take hours and hours and hours to do that makeup because you're dealing with cotton and clothing and latex. Pierce shaped many of his characters using a liquid plastic material called collodion. It had to be painted directly on the actor's face in several layers. On Frankenstein, the process was so laborious and painful that Boris Karloff often slept in his makeup rather than having it reapplied the next day. Then when prosthetics came around, it, you know, people think Jack never used prosthetics. He refused to, but no, he did. There was a, a, mummy, uh, a werewolf movie, a Wolfman movie. He did a prosthetic nose piece on, but uh, he was not into prosthetics. He preferred the handcrafted look, and Universal wasn't having it, so you know, they kicked him to the curb. Uh, but uh, you've got uh, Charlie Gamora, uh, the original, um, the one uh, that was the radio program, and then they turned it into the Oh, uh, War of the Worlds? War of the Worlds, yes. Hey. Thank you, Tom Cruise. Yeah, you got it. Uh, well, he did the original one with his daughter, 14-year-old daughter, uh, Diana, I think. But Charlie was great. Charlie actually sculpted some pieces that were set pieces for the Phantom of the Opera. It's from the Philippines. But back then, a lot of the people that worked on productions, not just because Charlie was from the Philippines, but they didn't get credit. Uh, Charlie was called the Monkey Man because he did a lot of beautiful animatronic monkey suits. Born in the Philippines in 1903, Gamora was one of the first movie performers to have his own gorilla suit and to make his living primarily by playing apes. Gamora was a rather small, agile man who seemed born to play anthropoid roles. Uh, but Charlie was great, and Jack Pierce to a degree, but more Maurice Cederman, Maurice and uh, Charlie. They were also chemists, so they would patent a lot of the things they would design, and then they would sell them to toy companies like vinyl doll companies and all that, and that's how they would make money. Clever. Yeah, and uh, Charlie was fantastic because Charlie would paint the portraits of the actors and actresses on set using makeup on canvas or paper and give it to them. And a few of them still exist today. They would put them behind glass. It was makeup. Uh, Maurice was uh, Orson Welles' makeup artist. So Citizen Kane, beautiful makeup. He designed a special vinyl material way back then. That's a great story uh, with Maurice. Uh, well, the thing a lot of people don't know is Orson Welles, whenever he was in a movie, he would always want a nose prosthetic because he had a weird thing about his nose. Thought it was too small. What a deep. Yeah, so they would always, he would always say, Maurice, I need a nose. And, uh, Maurice would do it and Orson loved him. And But the problem with uh, one of the movies he was doing, um, he was non-union. And I think it was for Citizen Kane. And I could be wrong, but that's what I remember. Orson was having dinner with the president, 
and uh, of the United States, and um, it, he brought it up in conversation that he wanted to use Maurice, and Maurice was on union, so he couldn't use him. And uh, the next day, the president made a call to, the, I think, the head of the Labor Bureau, and then they delivered a union card right to, to Maurice. And That's he did how it. we get it done. That's how you get it. Just go straight to the top. Uh, but um, Maurice patented tons of, of things that they use um, in, in the toy industry and medical industries, too. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the first movie to use foam latex was uh, Wizard of Oz. But it had come from a design that was used for, Wait, for, for oh, the Wizard of yeah, Well, no, the, the, the lion and the oh. tame man and the witch and there were the monkeys and come on. Uh, there were a lot of a lot of prosthetics in it. Put your hands up, you lopsided bag of hay. Now that's getting personal, Lion. Yes. Get up and teach him a lesson. But it was taken from a formula that was used in a failed attempt to create tires for World War two that wouldn't go flat okay and then a prop master ended up using it and then they said hey let's use it for makeup and foam latex was used for decades and decades it's still used today but it's not the uh the prime material we use today and what about the when you talk about the, the, using the cotton for for are you still using that technique uh not really it would be more for incredibly low budget or maybe halloween haunted houses and things like that okay. i mean that i played around with that uh, I did an Eddie the Corpse makeup just for fun when I was a kid, and uh, I did a full head uh, Freddy makeup before I got into sculpting. Uh, based upon that, it's easy, it's accessible, everybody can use it. But generally, no, unless it's a you know, you've got a scene change or something that has to adjust, and you've got to make something, you you know, figure out what you can use right there. But that would be what we call a build-up makeup, not a prosthetic. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then there's John Chambers, Planet of the Apes. He keeps pretending he can talk. That bright eyes is remarkable. He keeps trying to form words. One of my favorite movies, Devil's Reign. Um, he started the very first off-the-lot effects lab. Uh, oh, no, I, well, he partnered with Tom Berman to do that, but then John backed off because they didn't think it would be successful, but it was. And then, so that's Tom that did that. Tom was Devil's Reign. John was Planet of the Apes, although Tom. You know, now we've got our facts right? Yeah, I know, I'm sorry, I'm getting old. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of great makeup artists um, that came before us that preceded us. It did some amazing work. Uh, you've got the Westmores, uh, you've got you know, a lot of people that worked in film. And there's a lot of things that weren't necessarily prosthetic, or they didn't do them all the time, but they still pioneered. Uh, and then currently, V is one of my heroes. We've got a great. Angel on your shoulder. I know, I know, Jenny. Uh, Greg Canham uh, is incredible. He's on our board, which we're fortunate enough to have a lot of wonderful people that I read about us when I was a kid that have been so wonderful. We've got Bill Corso. We've got, um, you know, we've got people like uh, Michael Westmore. There's um, Joel Harlow. There's wonderful people who are amazing at what they do. And you were talking earlier about like people specializing in certain things. Do each one of these people like Well, they might, a... yeah, they might be known for a particular look or a style, but generally the people I've mentioned have to know everything that goes into it because they're department heads or they run a lab. Um, specialists uh, tend to not get their name out there as much um, because we tend to be more behind the scenes people. Um, but there, there are people that I love. I mean, there's, uh, you know, sculptors, there's painters, 
you know, there's there's uh, people like Gino Acevedo, uh, there's Steve Lang, there's, uh, you know, Matt Rose. I mean, there's some legendary people that were like Rob Freitas I was telling you about. Uh, that might be specialists in doing one thing. But it doesn't mean that the people I mentioned weren't really, really good in one or two or three areas, but they also have to know how to deal with people, work as part of a team, how to break down a budget, how to hire, fire, uh, and know the, the particularities. Yeah, interact with the actors in production. Um, and, and those are the people that are smart enough to know, hey, I'm not so great at this. I'm gonna bring in somebody to do this bald cap, or I'm gonna bring in somebody to do this cutthroat, uh, or I'm not really the best designer out there, so I'll bring in someone that can design a really cool item. And you talk about style. I'm assuming, are you talking about some some artists are more attracted to a Tim Burton style yeah. or uh, things like yeah. that. Do you think it's important for special effects artists to have well, the style that they're drawing? It's to kind do? of a catch twenty two. Um, some people might pigeonhole you into that one style. Mm -hmm. If something gets really big or popular, they might not think you can do another style. So um, it, it's really dependent upon the artist. If if you're a strong enough artist, you should be able to be flexible with your style and work with what production needs to understand. But other times they'll hire you for your style. And they'll say, just do, put your thing on it, put your spin on it. Right. Yeah, and sometimes people don't think they have a style, but it's obvious they have a style because you've been staring at it for so long. You know? I have a style uh, and I, I know I have a style because I appreciate certain aspects of design elements, uh, but I do things that are you know, without a style. Has your style changed over the years, or has it been you just been building off of? Yeah, your style it evolves. Things? I would say so. Um, but you tend to, if you're doing something you enjoy that isn't rigid in the requirements, you tend to put your style. Into it. Okay, sorry, I just I looked down and uh, how did you end up working on four Slipknot music videos? Oh God! <laughs> well, it's interesting with that. Um, I was contacted by a friend of mine, Rollis Khan, way back in the beginning of working with Slipknot to uh, create a mask uh, for one of the, uh, the, the band members, Sid. And it was uh, an interesting process because they wanted it to look like um, Starscream from the Transformers. My time will come, Megatron. Never, never but they had to change it a certain percentage so they wouldn't get sued for copyright issues. Okay. So that was my job and, and they had done some designs and I came in and did the piece and, uh, and then Rollis finished it up and it looked great. And then um, I had one of my graduates years later um, work with Slipknot and uh, it was with Sid and Sid wanted a realistic, bigger version of his own face that was going to be poseable and maybe have animatronics and so she said hey i know you did some stuff stuff but said you want to do it again and i said sure so then i just did a likeness of his own face on his face but exaggerated okay uh, and so yeah. but just lot like larger version yeah. or did you exaggerate certain features well you have to exaggerate certain features like the eyes to make sure he can see out of it when he's on stage okay um but other than that you know and then you're trying to fit his own face on his face but also make it look kind of normal but weird. So you, you, there are certain things you can't change. The uncanny valley. Yeah, exactly. So certain things you can change, certain things you can't. So it's more about intuitively. Then I worked with Sid on it. He liked it. So yeah, yeah. I've done I've done work with like Alice Cooper and 
It's weird. Uh, special effects and, and music tend to interact. I've done work with Usher. Um, I had to do a likeness makeup for one of the dancers for him. Music videos get to be so creative. Yeah. They don't have to fit inside a exactly. world or a specific narrative. They can yeah. kind of like fold in any aspect. Yeah, music videos can also be a little more chaotic, and sometimes they can be lower budget. Sometimes they're higher budget, but generally lower budget. Uh, and you, we need it now, or we need it now. But uh, yeah, I enjoy it. It doesn't matter to me generally, as long as uh, you know they're receptive. I know my time frame and I know my budget. What goes into deciding what should be practical practical effects versus visual effects? Well, that's usually from the production end, and that's from budget. But from our perspective, it would tend to be. Um, if this is something they run out of time or budget to do now, they say we'll put it in post. And that's usually the death knell when you hear, we'll put it in post. Then you have no control over the look. Uh, Bill Corso is great on trying to work with the visual effects department and the makeup department and pull them together and have a bridge to where when they're doing blood. Like I know a lot of people have seen really bad digital blood. Well, at that point, it should be the makeup artist that was on set that comes in and sits down with the artist in front of the computer and goes, okay, well, that wasn't the right color, or you know what, it flows a little bit differently because that's their eye, that's how they're attuned. You don't blame the artist working with the computer effects. That's not their thing, right? I wouldn't tell them what to do with their end, but when you get together, it just makes the whole production better. Uh, and, you know, and then sometimes it depends on, um, like for Iron Man, you know, a lot of people have seen behind the scenes where it's a practical upper torso or maybe just the helmet, you know, but then you can't make a suit that's thin enough, that's light enough and so on. So you work and you try to know, figure that out ahead of time when you're filming. When they started out, they were just a little afraid of damaging it. Plates intersecting and chipping off paint and that kind of thing. But by the end of the day, he'd really gotten the full range of motion and had sort of learned to live in the suit. Generally, when it's done with CG, production feels they have more control, and they do, over every aspect of it later on. Mm -hmm. Because they can change color, they can change volume, they can adjust it later. So it might come down to, we need to have that flexibility later, as opposed to remaking the whole thing from scratch. But a lot of people don't realize when you're 3D printing and you're scanning, and then you, you still have to get, if you're making a physical suit based off of a 3D design versus a sculpted and a, a traditional design, you still, because of the warping of larger pieces when you're 3D printing, you still have to go in and sand it down because of the, the lines, and then you still have to make molds, and then you recast them, and so sometimes it makes it even more work. Um, and, and again, like a lot of work. it is. It's a lot of work, and you got a lot of people involved. That's why it's so expensive. But, uh, you know, and then you'll get, you know, you'll be fortunate enough to work with directors like Guillermo del Toro. I was able to work with him on Mimic, where he prefers practical. You look at the, the uh, Hellboy movie. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. And I think the actors prefer the practical on set because they can emotionally get into the character and they can see it and react better. Yeah, they feel like they're living in yeah. yeah. And then the audience reacts from that and understands it. So, you know, there's a budgetary issue, there's a visual effects issue, component control, and what they need to do later. Um, and it's just a discussion that's had with production. And hopefully the, the designer or the makeup artist is involved in that discussion. Say, look, here, I can do this. I can show you what I can do. Mm -hmm. Now, let's see. If you don't want to do it that way, that's fine. And what are the materials used for effects that fans wouldn't think they would be? Someone's saying, like, a meat for a zombie biting? Yeah. Is that oh, yeah. 
Well, the actors have to eat something. Right? Oh, yeah. If they get hungry. Crafty's a long well, way Well, no, away, I mean, so. they, they, when you're disemboweling someone, you know, you want to have something somebody can bite into that actually they can eat. Um, there was a, you know, oh, if, if they're eating a cockroach, do you want them to eat a cockroach? Or do you want to make that cockroach out of a date? You know, and carve it up. Okay. And, yeah, out of a date. Uh, we, we do scabs out of strawberries sometimes. Oh. Delicious. Yes. Um, what a buffet of options. But even with gelatin appliances that are similar to um, uh, silicone appliances, that's edible. Uh, it's just gelatin and glycerin and sorbitol, which is a candy, you know, thicker and stickier. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really like even on Mimic, the, the team is hired. We come in, we sit down, we look at the script, we look at the storyboard, and then they say, okay, go R&D this for a few weeks, figure out how you're going to do it. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay. Okay, and then you go and you try and see it because our world overacts or over um, meshes with uh, props, with wardrobe, yeah. uh, with a lot of sure. things, right? So we have to coordinate and a lot of physical effects are not just putting on the makeup, but it might have to interact in some way. Or there's a blood cannon, like we have a blood reading class here. And so a lot of these things are what we bring our experience to the classroom with, like with V you know, how to department head a show or how to break down a script, how to bid on a project, what to prepare for, how to deal with these kinds of situations on set. You know, if you go on set and you had a slit throat ready to go and you got the blood tubing and then they say, okay, uh, we changed it to a shotgun blast to the head and we're shooting in two hours. Okay, well you go to the crafty table and uh, you say there's a grapefruit and here's some red food coloring or there's some juice and some peanut butter. And I'm going to sculpt it with the peanut butter and use the grapefruit. It looks like brain. Put some grapefruit coloring and some juice, and please don't move. You know? Whoa. Yeah. When it comes to, if you have the pre-prep time, though, I just, I'm imagining you uh, have, like, putting the practice uh, zombie prosthetics and everything on your model. And then you have to see if you can tear through it. Are you acting out? Biting into yeah, like your yeah. model's neck. Well, you know, you have to have safety procedures. You might have plates underneath that are made out of actual plastic or even metal, depending. But you have knives and stuff, and you have, you know. But that's sometimes our job is to explain to the, you know, director. Okay, that's an awesome scene, but it is not doable. But we can do it this way or that way. You give them options. Yeah. We can't do all of that in one take. It's not going to happen. We got someone standing right off camera with blood tubing, and you know, oh no, but I gotta, I gotta do one shot like Alfred Hitchcock's The Rope, you know, or a rope, or you're pulling back, and it's, well, okay, that's. But how about we do this? How about we have a reaction shot with blood spatter, and then we have a a close insert an insert shot of a, a dummy with silicone chest, and you can have it plunging in, and then we can do a prosthetic in the next shot where it's they're spinning around and blood is you know flowing out. Uh, you know, and then you could have whatever, but, and then, so that's what you do, it's a conversation. It also sounds like a conversation where, if you're going to be doing special effects, you also need to know just a lot about the basic, like, of the aspects of filmmaking in general. Yeah, yeah. it helps. Yeah, because you just talked about, like, going in for a close-up, and then, like, yeah. you know, all these other options that it sounds like you want to be able to offer. Yeah, you do, and that's important. And, well, I mean, some people don't care about that, but those that want to go further want to learn as much as they can because your job is a troubleshooter and a problem solver and you're the creative and you're responsible for this and you want to help get this project done and you want to bring that vision to life as best you can. That's why it's about getting to the finish line. It's not necessarily about anybody's one vision. It's trying to 
Everybody come together. That's why you hire these people that are really good in their areas. Okay, guys, I don't know how to do that, so come on in. Come to the team. Here's how we can do it. Okay, you know what? That's different, but it works for me. Let's go. You know, because you got a budget, you got a time frame, and you want to get something to the market and make some money to make a next project and make a next project. So people have to understand it is a business, but it's also collaboration. And some people can't marry the art with the business and they get very difficult. And some people can't marry the art with the business and they get difficult on this end, right? You have to say, look, we've got to have some give and take and you've got to help me out. If you change this, I do need some more money. I can't take that out of my own pocket. You know, you realize this is a job too. And then the artist's like, no, I'm not going to change that or I'm not going to, but this is what it's about. Yes. So you've got to come together. So it's always a collaboration to one degree or another. Yeah. What's a dream creature design that you'd want to create practically if the sky was one? Uh, anything Lovecrafty. Oh, well, have you seen the recent the HBO show? Yes. What they're doing yeah. with it? Yeah. Uncle George, the reason I'm back home, my father is gone missing. One, two, three. The place he wants me to go is in Lovecraft country. Is there, I mean, uh, like a specific creature within that world? I mean, I'm a big fan of Cthulhu. I also love the Joker. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, just anything Lovecraftian would be fun. I'd love to work with Guillermo again if he decides to do the Mountains of Madness. He's been trying to do that for a long time. But, uh, yeah, uh, I worked, you know, I, I got I was fortunate to work on Godzilla. Uh, wasn't my design choice, but Patrick did an incredible job. Um, and it was great to just be attached. I would have loved to have worked uh, on any of the Lords of the Rings projects. Yeah, these are things you grew up with as a kid and you'd love to work on. I'd love to do a Jason head from Friday the 13th or a, yeah. you know, Freddy head. Um, you so know, less just... of the sci-fi, more of a, of like the fantasy war. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I love sci-fi. I love aliens. Um, yeah. But uh, for me, it's always, I, I like making things that are creepy, but... Um, can be potentially interpreted as lovable, but could also kill you. So yeah, it's a combination. Of That's a really good line to uh, to walk along. Yeah. Well, Lovecraftian, they are not. It's they are aliens. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, but H.P. Lovecraft was just writing about aliens from beyond the stars. So they're all aliens, and uh, they're designed in such a way that it's a challenge to put forth a human emotion in a completely alien face. Uh, so that's what I love about that. It's the challenge. It's having triggers in the facial expressions and design that don't overtly look humanistic, but still uh, bring out in someone a wariness or a fear or a creep factor. That's exciting. It's, again, it's about that language of sculpting. Do you typically then like lean towards more? Have you talked about like the reptile designs? Do you? Believe do you look more towards animal expressions and the way that they're Sure, that's a huge part of like what we teach here when I teach sculpting is you have to go to nature first and foremost. They're, they're saying, well, but this thing wouldn't be recognizable to humans, but your humans are buying the tickets. Yeah. So you're going so far, you've lost vision of what the whole goal is. You have to get, it's all about the reaction of the audience, zero, the viewer if it's just for art purposes. Um, so if you're gonna do something that's an amorphous blob, okay, well then you've gotta film it around that to bring up the horror and the fear of the victims and what happens to them. But um, as a creature or a character, even with 
alien. You know, you've got the snarl of the jaw when it opens. That's human or natural, natural. That's wolves and you know, other creatures that do that when they snarl. But uh, even predators got human eyebrows. But if you didn't have the human eyebrows, well, it'd have to be the visual representation of sharp teeth, maybe, and the stance. But it's the eyebrows that give it to the nation. Yeah. Whoa, I never noticed that. You're just saying things that are gonna, I'm gonna look at movies. Godzilla's like that too. In the last Godzilla movie, uh, because that was the whole thing with uh, Godzilla is they never wanted to show expression on the face. Mm -hmm. In the last one, they broke precedent and they gave it expression. So if you watch, you'll actually see it where it looks sad or happy or angry. The director said I really wanted to do that and that was important to me. So he was able to convince you know, to do that. I, I have heard a few things about how Godzilla is specifically in such like a, a treasured story, oh, yeah. the property that it was a little hard to like oh, even yeah. change tone. Well that was why I was surprised they let Patrick do that for the, the one I worked on in 98. Um, but they let him completely change it. Stan, that a little more of a, like a, a less of a horror feeling and more of a... Well, yeah. Oh, definitely because of the director and the script. It had more comedic feeling. Yeah. But um, really the only one that ever had a true serious approach, besides the more recent ones, was the very original one. Well, Orson Welles did the voiceover. Uh, it was serious. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, it's alive, a gigantic beast. What's the longest time that you've had someone in your makeup chair before? Uh, probably five hours. Yeah, it was for a test makeup for an orc. Uh, and and then the final, when you do the test makeups, you always want to plan more time and then you uh, refine it and make it faster, better. So you want to get it down for like an hour or two if you can at most. And that's just working on face yeah. and, yeah. okay. What's the best, uh, what's the best thing that a model or an actor can do for uh, a special effects makeup? Just enjoy the process, cooperate uh, and try to, um, involve the makeup artist in your uh, your acting as much as possible. As in, how does this look? Or what do you think, or is it possible to do this? Or will this work with what you designed? Or what are your thoughts on it? People, there are a lot of great actors that are like that. So like you could become a little quasi-director. Uh, yeah, maybe. in a way, yeah. Yeah, yeah you want to work together. And they'll always go, how's it looking? And what do you think, did that look good? And you're the one that created it. You know, so yeah. they would be ridiculous to, to, it would be ridiculous to not involve you. There are actors that, you know, get really upset or don't want to be cooperative or they just don't care. Or, you know, there's a great story he has about a, a well-known actor that sat down and said, okay, I'm going to give you a one hour to do this and that's it. Oh, I don't want to talk in his accent because I'll give him away. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll <laughs> <laughs> and she did it and, uh, and he said, all right, you're screwed now. I didn't use the word screwed. And she's like, why? I said, you got to do it uh, this fast every day. She says, oh, what are you talking about? We'll do it even faster. You know, so, and then walked away. Uh, so, you know, you will run into people in general, just not just actors, but you know, that might want to make your life hard because it's fun for them. Yeah. But you step up to the plate and you show them and then you just don't let it bother you. But uh, yeah, you're looking for someone that cooperates and shows up on time and has a great attitude and isn't too much of a method actor. 
Yeah. Sometimes there are some method actors out there that can make life a little difficult. Yeah. They're just being beat up. <laughs> they're be no, they're being the character. So they, if the character is someone that's a complete annoying jackass, and they yeah. always show up drunk or late because that's the character. Well, how does that help? You're, and there are some actors that do that. Yeah. You understand it. You want to work with the director or the producers and go, hey, you know, I'm having these issues, or what do you think, or you know, just do your best. Well, like you kept saying, like it's like. We're all working together to get to that finish line. Yeah, it is and, you, and you want to respect the actor and the director and the producers. They all have jobs to do, and they're all important. And your job's important as well. You're just below the line. Yeah, it's so important. Are you ready? I know I've already asked you so many questions, but this is the, the really, really fast question. Okay. Name five movie creatures. Uh, we've got uh, Predator, Pumpkinhead, Alien, and uh, we've got... Um, well, Mimic, of course, got Godzilla, we got uh, King Kong. I mean, that's, you could just keep going. I mean, well, you can just keep going. Most people yeah. can't keep going. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> what movie would you want to remake if you could remake any movie? Well, that's a good question. Um, wow. Um, if rapid I could remake it, yes, rapid fire. I would say <laughs> I would like to remake um, Frankenstein. Answer in the Matrix, does Neo take the blue pill or the red pill? Oh, well, he takes the red pill. What creature or character would you like to redesign? Well, throwing that's no a the original yeah. design. Um, yeah, throwing no shade to the original designer, I would say Frankenstein. Uh, you worked on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang starring Val Kilmer. What was his Top Gun call sign? Oh, that was the Osman. There we go. That's him, Iceman. Um, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Of course, 100%. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Because, hey, motherfucker. You worked on Star Trek starring Chris Pine. Roughly how many species of pine trees are there? Uh, roughly? Say, roughly? I don't know, 120 curry. Did you look at this sheet? It's 125. Hey, that's good. What? What do trees have to talk about? Hmm? Uh, who played park owner John Hammond in Jurassic Park? Park owner? Oh, that's the director, um, uh, Richard, Sir Richard Attenborough. Who in God's name do you think you are? John Hammond. In the action thriller Speed, why is Sandra Bullock's driver's license suspended? Oh, I don't remember that, sir. She was speeding. Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> There's a bomb on a bus. Who played Detective oh, Rick Deckard? Oh, that was uh, Harrison Ford. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. Star Wars or Star Trek? It depends on the time frame on which you ask me. Uh, I would say now, no, on how production has changed and the writing has changed. But if this would have been 12 years ago, I would have said Star Wars. It's just like Beggar's Canyon back home. Um... Then wow, it changed to Star Trek. Yeah. And Buried alive. Buried alive. Come! Come! Now it's neither. Uh, what is the perfect seat placement in a movie theater? Are we in the middle? Front in the middle. Back? It's because of the speakers. I need to have them each equally distant away from me. Yeah, okay. Um, do you have a favorite movie theater in Los Angeles? Yeah, I would say it's the Chinese theater. That's a big one. Um, tell us one more fact. Where can you be found on uh, social media 
And where can we find you in terms of the school programs? Well, I'm uh, mainly on Instagram at Joiner Studio, J-O-Y-N-E-R Studio. My website for my personal work is joinerstudio.com. Uh, the school is legendsmakeup.com. Uh, we also have Legends Makeup Academy on Instagram and Facebook, and Twitter, and LinkedIn, everywhere pretty much. You got them on look. Yeah. Yeah, so legendsmakeup.com. Uh, we're having classes right now. I hope people check us out. Come take a class. Yeah. They sound uh, amazing and very, uh, like they, they teach you everything that you could possibly yeah. want. Yeah, we break the training down into week-long chunks we call focus classes, and we really delve deep into that that one skill or two skills or three skills that make up an area. So we have a whole week just on making skins for silicone. We have a whole week of just application mastery. You have a week of sculpting. And there's about 40 weeks of uh, I have designed. Uh, so uh, we're based here in Los Angeles. And uh, like I said, we're doing tests right now. Our classes are small. Uh, it's a lot of fun. But it's awesome to be able to stand right next to, you know, three-time Academy Award winner V. Neal and learn how to apply something or learn how to do a makeup or a design. And small classes, I think, are the, the great you get more hands-on. Oh, sure. One-on-one. Yeah, we're keeping the classes less than seven, so it's awesome. It's very intimate. Oh, that's so cool. I might uh, fight people to the death for one of those spots yeah. with no previous experience. So well, we'll, we'll, we'll do a faux death and we'll do the makeup for it. How does that sound? <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Thank you so much for this um, wonderful chat. I learned so much. I My learned pleasure. so much more to learn. So I hope people yeah. uh, come to the school and, and continue their education. Yeah, we're, we're glad to stop by. Thank you. And that's a wrap on the first episode of Below the Line. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you all enjoyed your time with Lee Joyner as much as I did. And if you did, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And you can also find us at Wait For Me Media on most social media outlets. And while you're there, if you want, if you feel so inspired, leave us a comment. Um, who do you want us to interview next? What kind of questions do you want answered about film, about creativity, about working in the industry? You name it. We want answers to those questions too i guarantee it uh so let us know and we will get back to you with tons more interviews we have waiting just around the corner and until then have a great rest of your week and we'll see you next time on below the line